So somebody in my house wants me to buy a macro lens. Is that person you? It's not me. Interesting. But I mean, I've never really felt like I needed a macro lens. And so now I'm looking for a macro lens and I'm doing research and that sort of thing. And there's not a lot of native macro options for Fuji. Yeah, which, I think there's only two that I know of. Well, there's three now. Oh, there, there's a 30 now, right? Right. They just came out with a 32.8. Mm-hmm. And what I've learned in looking into macro lenses is people are really, uh, what's the word? I don't want to say snooty or pretentious or particular. I think you might mean particular. Mm, I don't know. They're a little... They're a little like, well, that's not actually a macro lens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if well, it's not one one, I mean, well, just says, get out of here. It says macro one and says says uh, one to two. Is that is that not a they're like no? <laughs> that's a false advertising. Yep, yep. And so they say things like, "This is a true macro lens." Yeah. Like, well, what does that mean? So, the eighty millimeter two point eight is a one to one, right? And the new thirty millimeter two point eight is one to one. And the 60 is a two to one or a, a one to two. One to two, right. right. And that that's always perplexed me because mm-hmm. I know that like what that means if it's one to one is like the physical side of the object is the exact same size on the sensor. A one inch object is covering one inch of the sensor. Right. And like that makes sense. But, I'm, but what I don't understand is if you have a like say a 100 millimeter macro lens and it's one to one and you have like a 30 millimeter macro lens that's one to one, like... They have different mag like how does that work? Yeah. It's interesting. And and what it is is it's just another way to say how close it focuses. Mm. If you're within you're know, like whatever four inches from the subject with a thirty millimeter lens, you would be ten inches from the same okay. subject with an eighty millimeter lens. That, I think I remember something about that. Yeah, now. so it's it just literally just comes down to how close you how you can get to the subject. Mm-hmm. So the eighty and the thirty are one to one. And where I am right now is I have an 80, 85 millimeter lens and I have right. a 30 millimeter lens. Mm-hmm. And so if I were to go out and acquire a macro lens so that this person could take macro pictures, I can't, I don't, I don't want to have two 30 millimeter lenses <laughs> and I don't want to have an 80 and an 85 millimeter mm, lens. Fair. And so I'm trying to decide, do I get rid of the 30 or do I get rid of the 85? So before you go any farther, I, I haven't looked, but do you know, do the Laowa ones autofocus? I have not looked, so, but I am kind of more inclined to go native. You, you say that, but those those Laowa macros, I think they're maybe, they're either Laowa or Venus, which are I think are the same. About, yeah, Laowa makes Venus optics. Those lenses, I think, are supposed to be really good, and they're really cheap. You're talking about the $500 Laowa 90mm f2.8? ultra macro oh they have a bunch they, there's there's more than just that they have varying focal lengths and Two all that to one magnification yep an aprochromatic characteristic outstanding image quality i just don't know if they're autofocus this one's not this one's not for uh for uh, xf mm, yeah i just remember when i was when i was looking I, for a macro they, they it seemed like one. they had some good options and it seemed to me like i could get it for like half the price of the fuji lens yeah, but then it's on the Fuji lens, and I don't like. Do you remember if it had aperture ring on it? I it, don't it do, remember. It does have an aperture ring on it, at least from what I can tell. Yeah. Ooh, four hundred smackers. Mm-hmm. But is it as sharp? This one is. This one is sixty millimeters, 
65 millimeters. That's an interesting focal length. I've never shot anything with 65 except for a zoom. I I like the idea of doing the 80 and then it would replace my 85 and I could use it for, you know, some like portrait or event type work and then also be able to use it for the macro and it would, it would serve a dual purpose and it has OIS on it so I could, you know, get some benefit with X-T3 using the lens. X-T3 doesn't have IBIS. But, I mean, I don't know. Like, I don't know. I've heard that that 80 is really good. I've heard it's one of the sharpest lenses that Fuji makes. Right. And it does have the OIS. I think it's F2.8. Right, it's 2.8. Yeah. And, I mean, it looks like a really good lens. It's expensive. I feel like if I wanted to save the money... Getting the 60 makes sense, but then I feel like a poser because it's not actually a one-to-one macro. So mm, Yeah, you can't be, have that. I'd be lying to myself and everyone else. So I, I think that 80 is maybe like eight to $900 used. Yeah, I found one for used for about 850 or 875 mm. I saw which, one on Facebook today for 800 Yeah, so... You know, about about 800 bucks. That's not that's not cheap. Yeah, but it's supposed to be really really good. And the whenever you take pictures not of macro, uh, if you shoot wide open because they have because it has to focus so closely, the bokeh is more cat eye, mm. and it has this swirly motion effect to it. And so it looks a lot like those Helios lenses, those Russian optic type lenses. Oh, that's so cool. yeah. uh, if if that's my jam, which which it is. Let's be honest. I'm okay with that. Uh, I don't have to have perfect round non onion. I do. I, I don't want it to be onion ringy, but like perfectly round bokeh. If it has like some character to it, that's cool. You know, I can get behind that. So You're such a Fuji shooter. Ah, oh boy. Yeah. Well, I think the 80 makes sense over the 60. What I, about the 30? I wouldn't get the 30. I feel like for shooting macro. You're trying to focus on the subject and sometimes you're shooting macro of things that you can't get super close to, like if it's an insect or something. Yeah, and sure. And so the more the more range you have, the better, I guess. So I don't know. Yeah, I and think the, that the, makes the OIS, sense. I think, is like the, the big uh, killer feature. Right. Well, you kind of have to have it if you're shooting at 80 millimeters in macro. If you're shooting 30 in, in that close, it's probably not that big of a deal. Maybe, yeah. So I found someone on YouTube who was comparing the 16 millimeter 1.4 and the 80 as like, do you really need a full macro or is a one to four yeah, good is, enough? That is very much like that conversation we had the other day about uh, <laughs> taking pictures of bears. Yep, yeah. sure Did is. you get the 16 or the 80? I don't know. What are you doing? <laughs> well, like the 16 is, it's a one to four. So it's also not a macro, but you can get so close and you can get some pretty good detail shots. Yeah. Well, like that's a, di- that's a totally different picture with like the how much field of view you see and that sort of thing. So I, I'm kind of set on going the 80 route, but we'll see. It, it's going to be really funny to me if you get that macro lens before I did. Because yep. when I switched to Fuji in July, one of the lenses I was thinking about getting was a macro. Mm-hmm. And here we are, and now you're the one that's going to buy it. Yep, and you were going back and forth on the on the 16 and the 80 as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I almost didn't talk about this, and I was going to buy it. And then just show up and be <laughs> like, hey, Daniel, check out this lens. It would have been pretty good. I guess I ruined that for myself. Yeah. I can't help it. Can't help but talk about it. I think the only downside I saw to that lens was that it's big and heavy. It is like a pound. It's huge. It's probably heavier than your current 85. Yeah, I would say so. It's big. I mean, it's yeah. really long too. And that just, yeah, it's not very portable. Yeah. Maybe th- you're maybe you're okay with that. But I think that the speed of the focus on that 80 is going to be pretty slow too, especially compared to the newer linear motors that they're doing, mm-hmm. um, like in the 30. 
The thing that annoys me about that 30 is that Fuji makes two 23 millimeters, a 27, a 30, a 33, and three 35s. Yeah, they need to calm down on that focal range. <laughs> it's like, do you want anything between 23 and 35? We have 10 lenses. It's ridiculous. I just, it's too many. It's too many. And that doesn't count with like the four zooms that cover that focal range. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's ridiculous. I mean, like 10 to 24, I would say that counts. Yeah. And then like the, the, the 16 to... 55 18 to 55 and the 18 to 120 and the 16 to 80 mm-hmm. yep it's too many yeah they need to focus on you know longer focal lengths like something in like the 50 millimeter range maybe right i mean that's kind of one of the cool advantages of smaller sensor sizes that you you get the crop and then you have this this extra reach and i think that they kind of leaned into that with the new telephoto that they launched in may i forget what it is like 100 to 400 or something right and they're like this is an effectively a 600 millimeter lens yeah and it is a third the size of a full frame version of that lens and you know half the weight Mm -hmm. that's that's pretty appealing yeah yeah it is especially if you're like shooting sports which that's i guess that's a teaser because because i shot some uh, roping this past weekend and i got to test out the xh2s autofocus with the burst shooting electronic shutter and, and, you know, fast action with like face and animal detect. It was a cool opportunity to be able to like run the camera through its paces for that yeah. Type of situation. Yeah. Looking forward to talking about that. Were you trying to decide between shooting it on a 16 or shooting it on an 80? I shot that on the Canon 70 to 200. Oh, there you go. So you didn't, Though, get, you didn't get right up in there. I would have, I would have rather shot it on the 16 millimeter. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome back to the Camera Gear Podcast. I'm Daniel. And I'm Lucas. And we're back to talk more about the gear side of photo and video. So what are we talking about today? Well, I mean, you kind of gave it away already, I think. Do you want to, do you want to talk about that now? or how do you No, want to... no, I just, I'm just going to leave that hanging. Okay. We'll, we'll talk about that next week. Oh, okay, okay. Yep. Well, let's talk about some software then. I know that we had some photo topics and some video topics. Which one of those do you want to start with? Let's get into the photo thing. I'm kind of curious on this. Okay. So, yeah, let's look at how we use Lightroom. Uh, we've talked about Lightroom here and there on this show, uh, but I don't think we've gone into too much detail on it. Um, I have it under on good authority that you use Lightroom very differently than I use Lightroom. <laughs> I think that's probably And true. I don't know if I have actually a good grasp of what you're doing and how you're doing it wrong, but maybe we can we can figure that out here. Well, so part of my problem is I don't know if I have a good grasp on what I'm doing with Lightroom either. So maybe I can learn something from this conversation. Who knows? <laughs> All right. You say you say you say you go out to a, to a thing. Say it's like a Christmas thing, and say maybe it's like a nativity. I don't know. I'm mm-hmm. just making something up. Yeah. And you take a bunch of pictures of children, and then you have to do some edits in it or whatever, and you're going to send this out to your your prospective sure, client sure. or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's your process? You take them pictures. You plug your SD card into your computer. You copy into the computer. What happens? Well, first off, I'm using CF Express, not SD. Wow, sorry. Come on. What do you think I am? Some kind of filthy casual? (laughs) Oh, geez. (laughs) I know you're going to judge my workflow. And like I said, I need to learn some things from this. I would never do that. One thing that I do that's weird is I don't really make use of Lightroom's library features in any way. That's fine. So... I copy things off my SD card. I put them into a pictures folder on my computer. You know, sure. I've got it organized by major subject and then by date. So, yeah, makes so total I can sense. Get all that, and so I get all my raw or 
I don't want to get raw as a is an overloaded term here. I get all of my unedited <laughs> pictures and put them in that folder. Which which could be raw pictures. They they could they could or could not be raw pictures. As a side note that I'm not gonna to talk too much about, I don't shoot raw very often anymore. Most of the time I just don't really feel like doing all that editing myself. And I've typically found that the camera does a really good job at noise reduction and I most of the time I'd rather just start from a JPEG. I think that is a brave thing to do. And more people could probably get away with just shooting JPEGs, yeah. Yeah. Es- especially if they're Fuji people. Yes, especially if they're Fuji people. Or, or Canon, I guess. Honestly, even even on Canon, that was kind of where I started. Well, that was your mindset. main appeal with why you bought the EOS R mm-hmm. was that you didn't want to have to mess with the photos mm-hmm. anymore and you could just shoot JPEGs. Yep, and and it mostly worked with that. And yeah, you know, Fuji has a lot of the same things. So we're not, not really going to talk too much more about that, but that's, yeah. that's well, what I do. And so once I have all those pictures there, I open up Lightroom. And I just get all of the pictures that I took and I import them all. So I'm not using that as my time to go and like, I like this one. I don't like this one. I just import all of them. And then in Lightroom, I look at my last imported thing, which is Mm -hmm. all the pictures I took. And at that point, I go through them and see which ones I like. And the ones that I like, I'll do whatever editing I plan to do on them, which varies based on the project. And then I flag them. So like I do the, the pics thing i think sure. it's called picks or flags yeah. or something and uh and choose the ones i like and then go through all my pictures and do that and once i finish that i filter by the ones i picked and select them all and export them then and then do you leave them in lightroom yeah so i don't i haven't gone through and done anything else with that no. they're, they're all still there i probably need to go through and like clean stuff out but i've got like tons of stuff sitting in lightroom from from having done this over time and I've exported the ones I like, and they're saved on my computer, and I never a, touch them in Lightroom again. You could be a Capture One user. Could I? With that workflow. Yeah, because I don't use any of the Lightroom features. Right. Yeah, exactly. All like the library stuff. Mm-hmm. But you're, we're talking about Lightroom, not Lightroom Classic. That's right. So I used to use Lightroom Classic, and I don't know if I really have a strong reason for why I'm not using Classic. It's not like there was some big feature. It's like, oh, I super need this thing, so I've got to switch to the new one. It just I started using the new one at some point. It does everything I need it to do, so I'm still using it. Are you using the feature that syncs to Adobe Cloud? I don't think you can stop it, right? When you import into standard mm-hmm. Lightroom, it just starts uploading. Yeah. I, unless you indefinitely pause it. I can't remember if I have that enabled or not. Okay. I I think it's I think it's paused, but I could be wrong. Yeah, it could be that it wasn't paused, and then you ran out of your twenty terabytes nah, of allocated space, and now it is. Paused. That's very possible. Or you're not using Lightroom enough to have even have twenty gigs of pictures up there. Uh yeah, I don't know. I I, I use it quite a bit because I take a lot of product photos. Right. Uh, yeah, I guess that makes sense. But your whole library isn't in Lightroom. It's just the things that you're going to edit. Right. And then they're in there, and you and you've saved your edits mm-hmm. in that way. Yep. Whew. Are we about to start talking about photo backup workflows? I don't think we can get into that on this. Oh, man. What would really blow your mind is that I'd, I wouldn't say at this point that I really have a photo library. Well, I mean, like you have a, a directory of photos on your computer, yes. which is like the most rudimentary form of a photo library. Yes. But but what I what I'm what I mean to say is that at this point, I think this is probably going to change. But at this point, I don't really have photos that I take with my camera that I intend to keep long-term. Whoa. <laughs> I mean, I've taken a couple trips here and there where I have pictures that I'd like to keep, but I do a lot of event shooting, and with event shooting stuff, it's like these are someone else's memories, like right, not, yeah. not really mine. So, like, 
that's not super important to me. I take the pictures, deliver them, and then I'm done with that. And a lot of the other stuff's product photos. And I've got the product photos that we need for the stuff that we sell. Yeah, but, but that's all like business stuff or, yeah, or you know something yeah. that you're giving to a client mm-hmm. or whatever. You're not putting those in your photo albums yep. or whatever. Yep. So you're not like really regularly making like an album or like searching for certain photos or whatever. No, no, I'm not. And I think I'd like to be that person. I mean, like I mm-hmm. like photography. I'm pretty good at taking pictures. I'd like to start making more memories with my camera, but most of that now is just on my phone. Yeah. And so I've got a lot of pictures on my phone. It's all backed up. I use, uh, you know, iCloud and I've got my photo library that way. Like that's all fine. But on the computer with my like big professional camera, I just haven't ever really needed that. And so maybe that's some of why I use Lightroom the way I do. Are you you ready? I'm I'm ready. Oh man. Lay it on me. So I, I am a, like, I used to keep all my pictures on, like, just, they're, they're on my computer hard drive, and I want to look at them, I'll go into these folders and look at my pictures. And I was like, I'm not, I'm not getting, like, the most out of all my photos. I want to be able to, like, see them and, like, search by geotag and people and whatever. And so, I reorganized everything in my disk by year, and then inside the year is a month folder, 01, 02, 03. And then anything that comes from my phone or that Say like I go to a parent's birthday party and I just bring my camera and I'll snap some pictures. Those I'll shoot in only JPEG and I'll drop them into those folders. We're talking about photo backup workflow, not Lightroom. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Anyways, I'm gonna stop talking about that. Yes. For event that's, stuff, that's I'll put for a future in, episode. I'll put in event folders, whatever, blah. Um, but the point is I take all that stuff, I suck it up into Google Photos, and I use Google Photos to see all of my pictures that are that are mine. Mm-hmm. Things like that we're talking about, like client work or whatever, where I go shoot an event or that sort of thing. Those go on a separate location on my server after I deliver them okay. so that I have retained a copy in case I need to reference them or they lose their copy. But I those are not getting sucked into my library. Sure. That and makes I'm, a lot of sense. I intentionally make sure that they, they are they are separate. So I use Lightroom Classic and I tried to switch to Lightroom Regular because one of the things that I felt like I wasn't getting the most out of Lightroom was the use of the library features. Uh, whenever you, like if you shoot a bunch of raw stuff and you edit it, if you do an edit on a raw and then you decide, yeah, I don't really want to deliver this. I'm just like happy with that edit. If you are not living in Lightroom, then you have to export that as a JPEG and then you have a raw file and then maybe the original JPEG, now the edited JPEG. And my problem was like, I don't need three versions of this picture. I just want one. Right. And so I still can't get away from like shooting JPEG and raw instead of just raw only. Ideally, you make the edits in your editing software and then you don't export them so they're not, the changes aren't permanent, right? You're able to always undo and like the metadata associated with whatever color corrections and stuff that you did is, is saved. And so I wanted to start using Lightroom's features like that and use Lightroom itself for my on-computer photo management, whatever. Okay. And I thought, okay, I'll switch to Lightroom regular because it does the cloud sync. And then that'll be another way for me to back up my photos. So if I want to see my photos on my phone or whatever, I can just open up Lightroom. They'll all be there. I can make edits to them on my phone and I can export them from there and I can see them from my computer. And I tried that, that situation. And it was like, it just didn't like the way that it works. My main thing is I want to retain a copy of my master library. Like what is, what is like the core truth of my photo library? And whenever you use Lightroom in that way, like regular Lightroom, uh, the, your, your core true photo library is on the cloud. And like, if you delete it from there, it can delete it off your machine. And mm, I'm like, you don't uh, like that. Hard that's, no. That's not what you want. Yeah. And so, and then also like Lightroom, whenever I was looking at it, and this was like a year ago, 
Lightroom regular doesn't have all the features like Lightroom Classic does. It seems like they're rolling out newer features into Lightroom Classic first. Which is weird, right? Like, or like why would they be doing Maybe it there's that some way? legacy stuff. I I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm getting that wrong, but that's what it seemed like to me. And then, but they maybe it's different now. Whatever. And so I was like, this just isn't this isn't working. Like I don't want to have to pay for all that storage. It's too many photos. Like I don't feel like I have control of my library anymore. So I was like, not not doing that. Not using Lightroom regular. So with Lightroom Classic, I'm like, okay, my my photos are here on this disk. I've imported everything, but now it's too much space. I can't like keep it on my computer. And what I learned is that Lightroom Classic will not let you have two versions of the same photo. So even if I have a copy of a photo in a folder on my computer and a copy on this drive over here, and I try to import that same photo, it won't do it. Hmm. And so I use that as like an ability to make sure that I don't have any like redundant locations. Like the the final copy is on the server, but when I open up Lightroom, it's either on my computer or it's on this photo drive that I have that I can plug in. Anyway... Uh, the other thing that Lightroom Classic can do is it'll do smart previews. And so if you, what I've done is I've generated smart previews out of my entire photo library, which in all is like 30 gigs total. And I think my photo library is, I don't know, like two or 300 gigs. I can't remember. It's like maybe say like 10% the size, right? Yeah. And the thing with the smart previews is if my those drives aren't connected to my computer, I can still see the photos. Okay. So you at least still know that you have those pictures and like you wouldn't be able to export from that preview. But right. At least you, you can see that they're there. Right. But so like the advantage is that even if I don't have my you know local hard drive with most of my photos connected to my computer, I can still see them. I can still make edits and it will retain all that information. And then whenever I, I can plug in the, the drive and have the full full raw okay. to you know export the final version if I need to. And then you can. There's like a, um, I guess they're the same thing as albums, but like collections. And if you create collections, you can then sync those smart previews to Adobe's cloud. And it doesn't account against your storage at all. And so you can sync as many as you want. And then on your phone, you can see the photo. And it's it's like a compressed version because it's this whatever smart preview thing. Mm-hmm. But in general, it's good enough for you to like open it up, zoom in, do your edits, whatever. And you can like use Lightroom on your phone or on your iPad and then go to your computer and export the final version. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And so you get like the whole sync whatever that you can get with regular Lightroom, but you have the like the local library control that you can get out of Lightroom Classic. Mm. And so I found like that's that's kind of like the perfect balance for me. And so if I'm editing like a big set of photos from something that I shot, like this rodeo thing, I'll create a collection for it, dump them onto that in Lightroom, and then I can edit them on my phone or I can see them on my phone to share with people. But then also I can have like the full res versions on my computer. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And so whenever I shoot, like I'll put it on my computer, I'll import it into Lightroom and then I'm using Lightroom to maintain a full copy of my library. And then I'll basically do what you do. I'll run through and I'll do my picks and my, and my declines. And then I'll select all and delete from disk through Lightroom things out uh, that I don't want. And then I'll do my edits. And then the ones that I pick that I like really like that I want the JPEGs available in Google photos, I'll export those few mm, okay. and then those will get uploaded. Nice. But I, and then if I need to move things from my computer to my external drive, I move them inside of Lightroom so that it doesn't lose the location. Oh, okay. So in, in Lightroom, that's where you're picking, like I yeah. want to store this file in this spot. Basically once I, once I import it into Lightroom, I don't touch those files on my computer. I only touch the files in Lightroom. I see. That way it's 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 the thing that's maintaining the photo yeah, library. Because like sense. when you use your file system to like run through photos and look through them and like all that library stuff that you would normally do in a program, 
it's just it becomes harder because like all you can see is the file name you have to like preview every image versus right. being able to search and sort by metadata and exif data sure and like what camera did i take it from and face recognition it's just it's so powerful to use these library tools as a library that makes it sense. really makes working through photos a lot easier at least yeah. for me but like i said i just haven't needed all that stuff because yeah. i'm not really taking pictures like that so i think it makes sense yeah i think we use cameras very differently yeah i think we do too Cool. I, I'd like to start doing more of that kind of stuff. So I may be starting to use some of these features. It kind of has me stuck in Lightroom is my is my mm -hmm. problem. Yeah, because if you move to anything else, what do you do with all the library stuff? Right. And and like in using Lightroom, they've had they have so many good features. So like the library functionality is really great. And the subject recognition stuff that they've put out has gotten super, super good. And like I've tried to switch to Capture One and I just it's those like aside features that are really keeping me stuck into Lightroom, mm -hmm. which kind of sucks because like it's a monthly cost and it would be cool yeah. to like buy this by Capture One the one time, and I, mean, I don't know maybe I'd, maybe I'd upgrade and it would actually be more expensive, but still, Capture One's better for Fuji. Like it, the they their color profiles are better. They do better uh, demosaic and processing of the raw files. They work with Fuji. If you're a Fuji shooter and you don't need the library features of, of Lightroom, Capture One is, is a way better choice. But on the other hand, I mean, you mentioned the upgrade thing and they, we were just mentioning recently the AI features they've been adding to Lightroom. And I mean, it feels like right now there's so much happening with some of these photo editing technologies and like what you can do that there probably will be significant upgrades in this stuff and you may want to be able to take advantage of those things. Yeah, for sure. It's... I mean, it's kind of where you want to be if you're if you're doing a lot of photo editing. I mean, Lightroom's Lightroom's just so good. But I was thinking about like what are the other options and like mm -hmm. what have I used? And I know like you used to use GIMP for photo editing, or well, that was more like Photoshop work. Yeah, I mean, GIMP is GIMP is basically like a free version of Photoshop. It is not nearly as good as Photoshop. No. People always want to say that the open source thing is just as good, but GIMP is not as good as Photoshop. Just full stop. Yeah, but. The other thing I think to mention is that things like GIMP or like Photoshop are not a replacement for Lightroom. No, you no, can they're do, totally different. You can do some of the same things in them, but it's not the same experience. You don't have controls that give you the same sort of abilities you have for photos. I mean, something like Lightroom is just optimized for the way you edit photos, and it just makes more sense for that. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's stuff like Pixelmator. That's probably closer to Lightroom uh, or as a possible replacement. And then uh, Apple Photos has has raw right. processing built into it i i used to use apple photos to do like really light raw processing for mm -hmm. my gx7 and i've since moved from because dealing with apple photo libraries is yep annoys me there's also uh topaz makes some stuff mm -hmm. although i'm not sure if theirs is actual photo editing or if because i know they have those ai type tools for reducing noise and stuff like that but i don't know if you can just edit photos and tweak photos in there or if it's like a pre-step before you get to something like lightroom yeah i guess i'm not familiar enough with what topaz is yeah you need to look it up but i was looking at some stuff today where people took old pictures that they had like from analog cameras and stuff and you know things that were just like soft focus or had some noise or had artifacts in them and they ran it through some of these AI tools and it actually cleaned it up a lot and made it look a lot better. So it doesn't always work, but I think it improves pictures a little bit. Be is interesting to look at. Does that include that Iridium tool that you're looking at or is that that's that something a, else that's you're looking at? That's a different thing. Okay. To, to, uh, Topaz is a company that makes several different products. They make some for photo and some for video, uh, but that's different from the Iridium tool. Right. Okay. Like different purpose and everything. I think so. Yeah. Okay, cool. Do you, do you think you'll, you'll, what do you think you're going to do as far as, you know, going forward? It's, I imagine it's going to be a lot of the same process, but 
I mean, do you think you see yourself in the future taking more like casual photos? Yeah, I think I'd like to. I think that photos are a really good way to have memories and it's nice being able to look back at something and see pictures from an event, you know, and kind of remember what it was like. And if you know how to use a camera and if you have a good camera, then why not use that? You know, why not have the best pictures you can get? And I don't know, I'd like to start doing more of that just to have things to look back on in the future. I think it'd be fun to do. And, you know, like I said, it's like, it's one of those things where you make a decision now and you'll probably appreciate it 20 years from now, whereas you can't go back. So we usually go on at least one trip a year. It's like a big thing that we do in November. And I've found that like for those kind of things, I love shooting video and it's like the big deal for me is like, oh, I, you know, I want I like the video specs. I want to shoot video, I like cutting things together and all that stuff. But whenever we go on trips, I find that I just I need to shift gears and I basically will only take photos. Mm-hmm. And it's it's kind of an intentional thing. And sometimes I'm like, why didn't I get a video of this? That would have been really cool. But I find that photos are way easier to digest. Yeah. And you can, you know, throw them up like I have a Chromecast and I can set set my the screensaver to be my, my pictures. Mm-hmm. And if I'm trying to remember like, what did we do? Where were we last July? I'll pull up last July in my Google photo library and look at the photos. And I don't know. I find that like for like memories and remembering things and, and going back photos are just way more accessible yeah. and I don't know. They're usable. Like you put them on your wallpaper for your computer and on your phone and, and they're just, they're everywhere and they're so personal. And uh, so if like for me, if I'm, if I'm doing something where I'm like, I want to remember this, then I'm going to take a photo instead yeah. of a video. Yeah, you can passively enjoy them. People have yep. those digital photo frames or right. you can put them on a Chromecast. Like you said, you could print them. Um, so I think there's a lot of advantages to doing that. Right. It's tough because it's like you you want to take video and you want to shoot photo, but doing both at the same time is is a chore. Yeah, and it's, you kinda, it's hard to stay in that mental space. Right, exactly. And so I have to be in like lucas photo mode mm-hmm. which is really just me snapping I mean, pictures of everything with a 16 millimeter lens honestly you're almost always in lucas photo mode yeah that's true gotta document yeah gotta know what's going on at all times <laughs> i was gonna say one last thing about this in terms of you know kind of going forward you know there's all these other tools and like you pointed out something like capture one would probably work for me since i'm not really using any of the library stuff and i mean if i'm honest it kind of I don't like the idea of getting locked into Lightroom. I mean, it just concerns me a little bit. You know, what if five years from now I don't want to use that anymore? Is it going to be hard to switch? And those things kind of worry me. But at the same time, the reason I've stuck with Lightroom this long and why I probably still will is just because I'm comfortable using it. Sure. And I don't like learning new tools unless I have to. And I'd rather just stick with what I know and not have to think about it too much. And that's where I'm at with Lightroom. I can do what I need to do and it's easy for me and I don't have to think about it. And that's probably why I'm going to keep using it. Sometimes you have to use learn new tools by force. Why Why, why does that feel like a segue? <laughs> <laughs> because it is, Daniel. I want to talk about DaVinci Resolve. But first, I think you should give... Uh, there is a free for Fuji users Lightroom, not Lightroom Capture One Express... Okay. That you can download. Free for Fuji users. Huh? Right. Because it only works for Fuji Raws. Mm. And you should download it and give it a go. Try some of your photos in it and see if you like the way they look more as far as like the details and all that sort of thing. Yeah. I'll try it. Like I said, I and don't. Then re- and then report back. I try to not shoot raw. So if less you're not, Yeah. Useful. If you're not shooting raw, it doesn't matter. But I may try it. It sounds interesting. Okay. So whenever you bring JPEGs into, into I know we were, oh, that was a perfect segue. But well, I, I can't. The moment is passed. The moment so. is passed. We're going back. Yep. When you bring JPEGs into Lightroom, how much latitude do you have to work with them? 
Because that's always like the downside with how people don't say, oh, I'm not going to shoot JPEG because like you can't recover as much shadows or you can't bring down the highlights quite as much. Yeah. Well, like what what do you find? I mean, are you I mean, like... I mean, there definitely are limitations there. And I guess it's a little hard for me to know how far those limitations stretch because when we shoot events, a lot of times we're in very dark rooms. And so there is just some limit. I mean, even with RAW, there's a limit to what you're going to get Definitely. Out. And I mean, I'm, I'm, sure, I'm, I'm sure some of my limitations are because I'm editing a JPEG instead of editing RAW. But also the reality is that a lot of times doing this event stuff, I'm not shooting a wedding. The pictures don't have to be perfect. And so I don't really want to spend a super long time editing each picture. I'll go in and I'll take out any obvious spots that are on the image or, you know, obvious problems like that. I'll do some basic color shifting, you know, increase the saturation, increase the clarity a little bit, you know, just kind of like little things to punch it up. But I'm trying to not make huge edits to pictures. I'm trying right. to not like radically change the way it looked. And for that sort of thing, I feel like the JPEGs just a little bit easier to work with. Yeah, I think that makes total sense. I believe I think that one of the big reasons you might shoot raw is most modern sensor cameras are ISO invariant, where if you shoot a photo at ISO 1600 and then you shoot the same photo at ISO 800 and then you go into your editing software and these are raw files and you boost the exposure up a stop to match the two photos, the noise in the in the shadows will be exactly the same yeah i think that's right and i always forget that right so like that's the one advantage of shooting raw is you basically as long as you're not clipping your highlights or clipping your shadows to an extent it doesn't matter if you miss the exposure yeah that's i mean that's compelling yeah. I, I mean like there's like obviously there's not really the the speed of which like you shot the jpegs you bring them in throw some contrast on there or do nothing and they're done that is huge versus having to process the raws uh but it's like if it matters you know, that might be one reason to shoot raw over yeah, JPEG. I really think it depends on the situation. Yeah. How how bad do you need those pictures to be good? Do you think it's something that you're going to want to print or whatever? You know, maybe then you, you pull out all the stops. Yep. Unintended. Yeah. Pull out all the stops to get all the stops. Bam. Yeah. Okay. So I was working on a project. <laughs> in Would you say you were or are working on a project? Well, you know, the client comments never stop. Yes. So I am working on a project. And we shot... We shot everything, most of everything, but especially the A-roll on the X-H2S in 422 10-bit HEVC. And that codec is just painfully rough on a computer. And we shot everything in 320 megabits per second for, you know, decent quality. You can shoot way higher on, on the X-H2S. You can shoot way lower, down to 50. But I figured like usually when I'm shooting on on a Fuji system, if I'm shooting 4K24, I want to be about 200 megabit mm -hmm. to kind of get it to be where as far as enough data that I can work with it. And it's not, you know, we're not having to get too much uh, compression in, in, the, in the footage. Yeah. What I learned from this is I'm probably just going to shoot in ProRes LT next time. But because <laughs> <laughs> I think it was like smaller file size. Man, I ran an export out as like I, was, I took all the render files and I ran export out of Resolve at ProRes LT, and the file was smaller than the one that we started with. <laughs> and I was like, man. I mean, it's probably, the compressed version probably has better stills, or I don't know, whatever. Three we were shooting 6K. First time we really shot a, a thing in, you know, 3x2, 6K, we're going to you know, produce this thing. It needs to be really high quality. And so I was like, you know, let's go one step up. Not 400, let's go, let's go, not, I don't want to go up to 400, we'll go from 200 to 320. Mm -hmm. Made sense. I made, did a multicam of the, like, the A-roll, then I put a little bit of B-roll on it. It's like a freaking three minute and 20 second video yeah and i'm editing this on an m1 mac 
and that has 16 gigs of RAM because that's the most RAM you could get in an M1 that's not an M1 Pro. Right. And oh boy, <laughs> I'm like running out of space like crazy. And not space, I mean RAM. There was a point where I was 42 gigs into swap. So that's 42 plus the 16. Yeah, exactly. And I'm like, how am I? I'm using 50 gigs of RAM on this 16 gig of RAM computer. <laughs> and I think that was my problem. There's, I think there's like, there's something wrong with my computer because I gave this project to you in Final Cut and you exported it and everything worked. Yeah. But basically what I'm running into is when I try to export out of Final Cut for this project, it it's like you have a corrupted frame. And I'm like, oh no. And it's not the same one every time. And right? so I'm like, okay, I'll just go in. I'll delete the frame because mm-hmm. that's what the internet says. And then a different frame and then a different piece, like a different clip and a different frame. And like, it just kept jumping around and I it was like, you know, whack-a-mole. I couldn't find it. It was, it wasn't even the same clip every time. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to chop this thing into pieces. I exported only my B roll totally works. Export only my A roll totally works. Export just the audio totally fine. And I export the multicam fails. Shoot. Mm. Open up the multicam, export each of those clips individually. No problems. I'm like, what is going on? So it's something about like added complexity, more files, something like I that. I have no I have no idea. And so my my leading theory was when it swaps into RAM and then it swaps back, something's getting corrupted. And so I was like, okay, we're gonna have to try, we're gonna have to try this and resolve to see like are my files actually corrupted? What's going on? And I don't know if you've done this before or if any of our wonderful listeners have done this before, but you can export an XML of your timeline between editing softwares. And so uh, it's, it's, it's pretty cool. Cause like you just, you, you know, export XML and then you go into resolve and you hit import timeline. And then it brings in all of your cuts in exactly the same place, brings in all of your audio and your titles. That's pretty cool. Things like transitions, and if you like, I had some Ken Burns stuff on some photos in this thing. Those broke the right, because the, it doesn't. It's not going to be the same between softwares. But all of my all of my cuts, like my crops uh, on the footage, that was all the, all perfectly fine. Oh, cool! So all the crops were fine. Although all the volumes were was broken. Like all the audio stuff was didn't didn't carry over. The Ken Burns stuff didn't carry over, and the color grading didn't, obviously. And then the titles, I had to redo all the titles. Okay. So quite a bit. Yeah, so like it was it was like all of the like the finalizing stuff that you would do when you're editing and but like the base cutting was there. Mm-hmm. And so I just like I sent it over there and I like you know slapped a LUT on it and hit export just to see if it would work. No problems. <laughs> I'm just curious, how long do you think that I guess you don't know how long your final cut one took because it kept failing. But did you have an impression of which one was faster? I had an impression after like redoing the edit in, in Resolve, which is what this ultimately came to. Okay. But like, yeah, I'm, like I'm the, just curious, like, like broad strokes. Did it seem like they were about the same? Did about seem, the same. Okay. About this. As, as far as like how long it took to render and how long it took to export, mm-hmm. they were about the same. Interesting. What's confusing is that whenever you encode out of uh, Dimity Resolve, it calls it render which is fine, I guess. But like in my head, I'm always thinking rendering is whenever it looks at all the changes you made and then makes a temporary version of the yeah. of the video in some sort of cache. And then encoding is when it takes all of those temporary video files and the original files and then uh, packages them up into some sort of container in some sort of format, whether that be H.264 or H.265 or ProRes, and sticks it into like a .move or .mp4 container. Yeah, so it's just a different vocabulary word for the same yeah, thing. Yeah, but it calls it final render. And so you can either like wait for it to do its render or you can final render, and then whenever you go back, it's all rendered. 
Anyway, it kind, of, it kind of felt like it took about the same time. Okay. The first time I did it, by default, uh, DaVinci Resolve has Smart Render turned off. And because I wasn't, I didn't do any like real edits to the footage when I did that first export, it just took all of the raw footage unrendered and then, you know, slapped it together and it gave me an export and it did it in like three minutes. <laughs> and nice. I was I was like, I waited for like 10 minutes for Final Cut to get to like 30% and then fail. <laughs> Whoa. I was really impressed. And then whenever I actually did the final version, it took like a half an hour to, to export. So yeah. it it was a matter of that I hadn't done all the stupid things that I had done sure. to the other one. Sure, that makes sense. So yeah, I like I didn't want I didn't want to have to do it because I knew that like, hey, can you move like this one thing and then maybe maybe just like shorten this gap? And then can you make this part louder and then use a different song and you know, like move this graphic over here i'm like okay sure if i was in final cut that would take me 30 minutes mm. done i'm like and if i ugh, i can't i can't finish it in final cut because i have to export and resolve and it's not going to carry over the audio stuff it's not going to carry over the color grading and all of these things and so i'm like what do i do yeah because because you don't know resolve very well no i i, I can color grade and resolve I'm like mm. that's what i've used it for but i've never used it to edit anything and so I'm stuck in the situation where like you could have probably exported it. I could have like finished it in Final Cut, bound everything together, gave it to you and let you export it. But that just it seemed like a pain. Yeah. And this really burned me. Like mm-hmm. I've never run into a situation with Final Cut in this way where it was absolutely workflow breaking, can't deliver a project. Yeah. Yeah, that's really frustrating. There was no way to fix it. I uninstalled Final Cut, I reinstalled it, I like deleted all library components, I reset it. I upgraded to Ventura forcefully because I was like, maybe if there's something, maybe like I'm running a kernel extension from, because there was like, like Rogue Amoeba and some other stuff that I've ran in the past as a kernel extension. And so I was like, maybe those are causing me the problem. And so I upgraded thinking, you know, it'll, it'll reset all of that because that's what happens when you, anyways. And so like, I'm not running any third party kernel extensions. I've done everything I can and I don't know why I'm having this computer problem. Yeah. Well, and, you haven't done everything you could. <sighs> I'm like this close to reinstalling Mac OS. Because <laughs> you're having other problems on the computer, right? Yeah, I was having, well, even in Resolve, I was working in it and it got to the point where I, I couldn't do anything. It was like a click and then it would freeze and it just became glacially. So I had to restart the computer that cleared out the RAM and then it fixed the problem. I know like this, we're, we're talking about like, you know, editing software, not my my problems with my Mac, but it's like there's some kernel underscore yeah. root underscore kernel thing that is chewing up ram whatever I, I guess the point i'm trying to get at is that i'm not convinced yet that your problem is that final cut can't handle it yeah so i exported everything into resolve because i like, like the final decision here was like i have to learn resolve i have to buy resolve because it doesn't support 6k footage in final and it doesn't support 10 bit 10 bit and it doesn't support multiple effects in the free version. And I'm like, I want to put a LUT and I want to noise reduce. Right. So and, that's two effects. And I want to export in 10-bit because you can see the difference. Yeah. And so I bought it. I bought Resolve. and You resolved to buy Resolve. Yep. No regrets. And so I, I, I'm like, I learned it, right? I, I brought it all in. I redid all of my cuts. And there was some pretty cool little features that I noticed whenever I was running through it. I like the titles in Resolve more, like the the name titles. Just you mean do you like the style or you like working with them more? Like the default resolve titles are different than the ones in Final Cut. And I don't know, I kinda got tired of using the ones in Final Cut. And if you want to make your own title, you have to like go into motion and do a thing and then bring it in. But for Resolve, the like the video editing software is like node based and it's a little easier to use. And it's like right there, just one tab over. So I liked that stuff. It was a little jarring and hard to get used to not 
having the the playhead follow your cursor. Whereas like in Final Cut, um, you can you can just like scrub by rubbing your mouse over over the timeline because the playhead is always following you, and you can have it you know have it play audio or whatever. So you can just follow your mouse along the timeline and like have it play back as fast as you run your mouse across it, across it. <laughs> so help me. And it, like I got really used to like scrubbing the timeline in that way and working with it in that way. And Resolve, it doesn't work like that. You're using your mouse to like do things. And then if you want to move the playhead, you have to go up and grab the playhead and move yeah, it. Yeah, that is a big difference. And it's not like something you can turn on. It's just, it works differently. Mm-hmm. And so getting used to that was a little annoying. I don't know if it has the same concept around compound clips. I still haven't figured that out. I assume there's got to be some way to like compound things. I it obviously maybe, I mean, all these softwares are different, you know, right. like the way you the way you approach it and the way you approach the edit is just totally different between the three big ones. It was cool to have a dedicated audio editing suite. And so like you do the edit over here in the editing tab and you can do like all your keyframing of your audio and your dips and all that stuff. But like in the editing tab, you aren't able to like select a range, grab the volume and pull it down. Mm. But you can do that in Fusion, the audio stuff. And so it's like you do your edit and then you switch over here to Fusion and then you can look at like has a little video in the corner. And then you can look at all of your time, all your audio in stereo instead of mono. And so you see both channels and you can do a lot of a lot more effective mastering in that tool than I've ever seen in Final Cut. Yeah. Final Cut's got a really a lot of cool tools where it's like, you know, drop a compressor on there and all that stuff. It makes it simple and easy, but it seems like it's hiding a lot of these yeah. pro level features. I can't I don't know if that's called Fusion or not. I think that has a different name. I is think it? Fusion is their their I think Fusion is their After Effects. Oh, I think you're right. But something I, else. Yeah. I but haven't figured out all those names yet. I that that's pretty compelling because when I work in Final Cut I'm I'm always disappointed at how little I can do with audio and it always feels like I'm doing I'm doing as much as they will let me but it's not enough. And I'm used to using Logic. That's that's how we edit this podcast is in Logic and so I'm used to having more sophisticated audio tools, but when I'm working on a video, I don't want to have to export the audio and jump into the separate program to do it and all that. So I mean just the whole like integrated experience thing it's seems called, really nice. It's called Fairlight, not Fusion. Oh. But that's the nice thing to me about Resolve so far is like they have this cool little cut tab. They have the edit tab, but then they have your your you know, motion graphics and then your color and then your uh, your audio all just built into one software. And you're not having to like, okay, export this out to this program, then bring it back in. And like, where are the files saved and blah, blah, blah. Right. And so like, that's all really cool. One thing I was finding difficult and annoying with Resolve and making the switch was in Final Cut, you can just say, use better performance, use higher resolution in your viewer. Like I, do you like, can, I do like the simplicity of those things. So like you just click up and you're like, eh, better performance. Use proxies. Use use what's in the... And it's just, it's just, you just hit the thing and you're done. It's easy. In Resolve, it's like, do you want the viewer to play back in full res? One quarter, one eighth? Do you want to use proxies? Do you want to render by yourself? Do you want a smart render? And it has like all these different options for like how you can speed up your edit. And Resolve got really bogged down. Like the, the RAM usage was identical between using Resolve and using Final Cut whenever I wasn't having the memory leak issue. Mm. And I don't know if it was like I got stuck in memory leak and that's why it bogged down so bad. But it got to the point where I'm playing back at like a quarter resolution. And man, it was it got a little slow. So that part, it sounds like maybe that was it was at least harder to configure than Final Cut. But when you finally got it when you finally set all those settings that you could actually edit your project, did it seem like it was worse or didn't look as good as it did in Final Cut? Was it a harder experience at that point? To me, it felt worse as far as 
its performance. Interesting. I had lo- I dropped so many more frames in Resolve in playback than I did in Final Cut. Mm, Whenever I did yeah. the first edit on this in Final Cut, I didn't like it played back super super smooth. I didn't feel like I was where like you hit the play button and you're like wait for it to play. That never happened. I didn't feel like I was losing any frames because in, in Final Cut, if you drop a frame, you can have it like stop the playhead right where it drops it. And in before I started having my RAM leak issues in Final Cut, no problems with cutting everything together. It was super, super smooth. Whereas in Resolve, I mean, you can whenever you're playing back, this, it's, I mean, this is a cool feature because like Final Cut doesn't have it. When you're playing back, you can look in the top left corner and it gives you the playback count. It's like I'm playing back at 23.97 or oh, I see. or three frames per second or eight frames. It tells you like the playback frames, which is really, really cool. And I'm watching it and I'm like 13, 10. Yeah. It three. makes you feel bad about yourself or your computer. Yeah, a little bit. So I really like Resolve. And having been just burned so bad by Final Cut slash my computer, <laughs> I don't like I don't know what I'm gonna do. I think I'm gonna probably work on my next majority of projects in Resolve and start pushing myself that way because of like just looking at fusion and fairlight and kind of we messing with it a little bit i could see myself really enjoying a lot of the pro more pro pro is probably the wrong word the more in-depth features that resolve has yeah. over final cut yeah it's more more complex but more capable maybe but like man i've spent the last whatever five years becoming very you know one with the magnetic timeline <laughs> and like understanding this like because you can't I've, I've said this before but like you can't use final cut like you use premiere to resolve yeah you have to use final cut like you use final cut and knowing how to work with the magnetic timeline and when to like you know use the place tool versus the pointer tool and and like connecting clips and using it in that way like once you get good at it and understand how to use it, it's so fast. I mean, this is exactly like what I was saying about Lightroom, where right. you know, like the the thing that keeps you in the software is that you're comfortable with it and you can pull in pictures or video and just get going and it doesn't slow you down at all. And when you use a new tool, you don't have that. And you have to learn all this new stuff and that's hard. Yeah, it is. And it's it's always really frustrating too, because like I'm I'm working in Resolve and I'm like, okay, I need to add five seconds to the beginning of this clip. Or at the beginning of my timeline, how do I do this? Yeah, yeah. Whereas in Final Cut, it's like you don't even and, have to think about yeah, it. Yeah, in Final Cut, it's like I'm gonna grab the trim tool, I'm gonna grab the edge of this clip, and I'm gonna move it to the left. Yep. Can't do that in Resolve. I was like, I guess I'll just Control A and move everything over. <laughs> like, is that what I'm supposed to do? Yeah. I think you could. T- I think you could technically use the Ripple tool because the, the Ripple tool behaves very similar to the magnetic timeline. Yeah. I just, <sighs> I know there are ways to do all this stuff. We just haven't learned them yet. Exactly. And I think that like, once I become very familiar with Resolve, I'm probably inclined to like it more. I think that I need to fix my computer somehow whenever this project is finally done, like do a full OS yeah. reinstall or something. I mean, what you were saying about the performance in Resolve is kind of, kind of making me think you're going to need a new computer. You need something um, with more RAM. <laughs> I, uh, I certainly need something with more RAM. If we're going to keep shooting like high data XH2S stuff. Oh boy. I mean, your experience on this project has meant that when I've shot stuff recently, I've shot it at low bit rate, 420, 8-bit. Because I, you know, especially if I'm not the one editing it and if somebody else is going to edit it and they don't have a top of the line computer, it's like I need to give them footage that they can use and that's going to work on their computer. And apparently that means I can't shoot in 6K and I need to really think about whether I want to use 422 10-bit. I, th- I think you can shoot in 6K. I think it's more of a matter of that 422 10-bit HEVC codec is really rough. Yeah. I had an Intel computer that didn't have HEVC H.265 hardware acceleration, 
And whenever I got the X-T3, I couldn't play back the HEVC footage because it was 420 10-bit. And like basically any modern computer in the last four or five years has that acceleration. Right. But playing back uh, 422 10-bit in HEVC hasn't been as dramatic as that for me, Mm -hmm. but it's noticeably harder on the computer to decode all of that. Yeah. And so to me, the lessons learned is if you're going to shoot 422, man, shooting ProRes. Yeah. Because it's going to be a lot easier on your computer. Mm -hmm. Those file sizes are going to suck, but I think it's going to make the editing experience better. I'm really starting to understand the value of something like the Ninja. Yeah. I think when we first started using that, it kind of felt like, you know, why is this, are you really getting the benefit out of this? But when you start shooting in those really high codecs, it really does start to seem like ProRes is better. And we're lucky with the XH2S that it can do ProRes internal and we have pretty big cards and all that. But if you didn't have that, or if you needed to record for a long time, that's where the Ninja starts making a lot of sense. The ability to export 422 10-bit into an HEVC container is a new feature of Resolve 18. Apparently I didn't do that before. Wow. I might, maybe it was 17. I think it's 18. Yeah. Either way, I mean, it's like the last year. Yeah, I definitely exported my project in that, maybe out of spite. If you had to struggle to edit it, then other people should struggle to play it. Exactly. Yeah. No, I, I'm probably going to have to export it down to 8-bit. Yeah. But I'm worried about how that's going to look. So I'll, I'll give it a shot. I think that I need to deliver a 420 8-bit version of this just because I'm so. worried that maybe it's not going to look. Because, I mean, the like if someone plays it on, say, a projector or like an old TV or whatever, it's going to play back in 8-bit. Yeah, it just the way that the um like the contrast in the shots and like like you have someone's face and then like a light shines across it. And you need <laughs> what what does it do when it shines across it across their face? You need like every uh how like how many versions of flesh tone <laughs> do you have on their on their face as far as you know like bit depth of the color? Right. And with ten bit, you get more increments and less banding. And in like, I exported the project with the free version of Resolve, and I was like, why does this look bad? And it was because it was 8-bit. At the same time, though, like you said, if you're playing it on something that's not a high-end screen, it's going to be 8-bit. Or even just YouTube, and, right? And, and I guess what I'm getting at is I would rather be the one that has control over how that happens. So like that's why I would export an 8-bit or something like that. Yeah, and I, I kind of tend to agree because knowing, knowing how it's going to be used should always inform how you deliver it. Yeah. I mean, if I always have my way, it's like, yeah, sure, I'm going to deliver in 24 frames per second, 4K, in like the highest 10-bit codec I can. But realistically, if someone's going to watch it on the internet, it's going to be in 8-bit. It's going to be in sRGB, not not like a wide you know, DCI-P3 color space or anything. And so it's, you know, if you edit and plan for that, then... Yeah, I used to have the problem of I didn't have any 10-bit displays. And so I was like, why would I ever shoot in 10-bit? <laughs> now I don't have any 8-bit displays. And so I don't know what something would look like if I played a 10-bit file on it. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know what to tell you to do about that. I'm going to go find an old junky monitor that's like VGA. Yeah, I get like a CRT or something. Yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna buy a, a like a disc burning thing and I'm going to burn it to like a DVD. And I'm going to play it on like an old, yeah. you know, not... No, on Blu-ray DVD player. I like that idea. On like a 720p monitor. Yep. I yep. like that idea a just lot. To, just to, you know, like it's like mastering my records in, a, in an old Escalade. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm basically Bruno Mars. It's perfect for a Fuji shooter such as yourself. Uh, yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So that, that was my experience. I I don't know what I'm going to do by resolve. I need to, I need to fix. I don't know. Like, I don't want this to happen again. Right. I agree. But, but also, yeah. like, I would like to keep using it for certain projects. Mm. 
I mean, it, it really seems like you have something else going on with your computer. The fact that I was able to take your project and export it. Yeah, that, that's pretty because we have the same computer. Yeah, same so that's, computer. That's pretty suspicious. You are running. You are running like multiple versions behind. I was running twelve point six, and you're on like twelve point two yeah, as far as so it OS could, versions. It could be an OS update, but we're the same version of Final Cut. Right. It seems to me like it's unlikely that an OS update would break things that badly. I have so many like stupid things that, like my photo backup workflow involves this automator app that runs a script. And so like, I'll like play, run my app and then my app will do like, you know, an R sync function, but anyways, whatever. And so there's stuff like that. And then I have like something involves uh, automator and like live folders that like you drop something in this folder and then it does a thing. And like, you have to set all of that up whenever you do, you know, like a new install. Yeah. And I feel like if I did a time machine backup on a new install, you wouldn't be able to trust it. Uh, yeah. You can't trust it. Problem right? might come back. <sighs> I don't know what to tell you. I would not call myself a computer power user when I'm off work. Right. And so I don't have all that stuff going on, but it makes it hard to reason about the problem too, right? Like any of that stuff could be affecting what's happening to you and you just don't know. I booted into safe mode and I tried exporting it in safe mode. Still didn't work. I I don't know. I mean, maybe that footage is cursed. Maybe you need to try a different project. I did. I tried a smaller project without multicam. And it totally worked. Well, but you you said multicam was yeah. the problem before. Well, so. maybe. I don't know. Yeah. <sighs> I'm thinking you need to get a lot of footage from something else. I tried it without multicam. Like, I tried a version where I took the whole A-roll timeline out. Mm-hmm. And then I did a, um, a synced clip where I synced the mm-hmm. DJI audio with the footage. And I just dropped it. I didn't even, like, line it up. I was like, bloop. And then tried to export. Failed. Yeah. But it just makes me wonder if you if you took a project of similar size, mm-hmm. just different footage. I wonder if that would work. Uh, I wonder if you just have something weird with that footage, but I don't know. Once I'm done with this, I'm going to run more tests and see. But I'm like, man, it's like I'm going to have to carve out some time, you know, a weekend or whatever and freaking fully restore my computer, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, that's frustrating. But then if I do that and it still doesn't work. Oh, man. I'm just going to throw my computer in the trash. Yep. Throw your computer in the trash. Yep. Sigh. That's when you buy a new one. That's when you get that 64 gig, gig of RAM <laughs> MacBook Pro, $4,500. I can't. I, can't, I just, it's just so expensive. <laughs> I don't want to. I could like, I could go back to PC, I guess. You could. I can't, I can't imagine why you would want to, but you could. I think it's fine. It's fine if you want your laptop to be all creaky and poor the, quality. The battery life on my M1 Mac is so good. Yep. It's like, it just lasts and lasts and lasts and lasts and lasts and lasts. <sighs> yep. I can't. I don't know, man. You I can't can get, do you it. Go get some like Microsoft laptop that lasts two hours. Yeah, it'd be no, great. I don't want to. <sighs> oh, well. I'll just I'll just switch to Resolve and then never think about it again. Yeah. And then that'll be It'll the answer. It'll all just be perfect. Mm-hmm. Sounds great. <sighs> what else, Daniel? I don't know. I don't think I can say it any better than that. I think we've decided what you need to do. You're going to buy a $4,500 laptop. Yep. Mm-hmm. With 64 use, gigs of RAM. And you're going to use Resolve for all your future projects. Yep. Done. Problem solved. I'm oh. looking forward to hearing how all that goes. Uh, yep. That's going to do it for the show today. Thanks for joining us. And if you enjoyed it, we'd encourage you to rate us on iTunes and tell your photography friends about the show. Also, check out our website at cameragearpodcast.com to learn more or send us feedback and questions. We'll be back with more next week.